Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and into ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Sebastian, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. We're going to be looking at tonight the cycles of the judges and all the different judges that we have in the book of Judges. We're not going to be able to read every detail of every one of these stories. We're just going to hit the highlights until you get a, a basic sense of it. Obviously, in two hours, there's no way we can do what would typically in a graduate program be a, a semester-long course on the book of Judges or something like that. So the purpose of something like this, as with all of the ICC talks, is to give you the basic tools you need more than anything to begin to read a book like the Judges and to make sense out of it. Otherwise, the book of Judges is one of those books where a lot of times people read a couple chapters and like, what is going on here? Let me move on to something that I can make some sense out of. But the book of Judges should be a book that is inspirational for you, a wonderful source of catechesis and things like that. We talked a lot about that last time. We're going to talk about that toward the end tonight as well. But in between, we got to look at these Judges, these cycles that in the end just keep repeating the same story. The details change a bit, the characters change the names, but in the end, the author is trying to emphasize the same story, the same problem, the same theme as we go throughout, and we'll, we'll highlight that again at the very end tonight. So let's pick up where we left off last time. That's chapter 3, verse 7. So we heard about this cycle of judges, of how, how the people of Israel, they move away from the Lord, and as they move away from him, no, the Lord's not changing. The Lord, he is immutable. Very important principle of theology. Understand that God does not change. Most people's understanding of God and their approach to religion, approach to the sacraments, everything, salvation, is an idea that somehow God is changing. This is very Lutheran, by the way. God changes, I don't change, right? So, but the proper understanding of, of the story here is that the Israelites move away from the protection of the Lord. Just like that child running away from you in the parking lot, right? And you say, no, no, stay near. They run away, and of course there's danger. And so that's what happens. They find themselves in danger. They're away from the protection of the Lord. And then they, after being hammered by an enemy, they finally cry out, oh, help me, right? And so... Finally, and in, their, in that crying out, it's a repentance. It's already a change of heart. So they're moving back toward the Lord, and they begin to experience his protection. And that protection is in the form of the, of the judge who appears on the scene, who then through the power of the Lord, by the Spirit of God that's, that dwells within them, they are able to do that which the Lord has given them to do, that is to be the Savior, protector of the people, right? So then 
Of course, once they get comfortable, things are okay. They start moving away again, right? We know this. Are any parents out there, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so here's what happens in the book of Judges over and over again. Chapter 3, verse 7 shows us the beginning of that cycle. Chapter 3, verse 7, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You're used to hearing that one. Forgetting the, the Lord their God. Now, when you see the all caps there, a lot of times I'm going to use the actual words in the Hebrew there, Yahweh or Yahweh, depending on how you want to pronounce the divine name. But I want to make sure you, you grasp that. In the Hebrew, they're trying to contrast the personal God of the Israelites. This is their God, and he has a name, versus the pagan gods. And sometimes in our English translations, when we get something like Lord in all caps there, which is a circumlocution of a circumlocution, it, it, it kind of distances us from the, the, the real feel of the text here. So a lot of times, I'll, if you get, for example, Yahweh, their God, and serving the Baalim, the Astro, the male and female pagan gods. Therefore, the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the of Kushatrishathayim, King of Mesopotamia, that's a long one even in Hebrew, okay? So he sells them in the hand of it. Now notice the language there. It sounds like the Lord does something. This is anthropomorphism. It's all over the Bible. Basic principle of Judeo-Christian theology is God does not change. So what we're experiencing there is the people are the ones who have changed, right? They are the ones who have sought out evil. They've run from the Lord. And so what happens is they move out of his protection. And so now... He appears to them as his as their enemy in a certain sense, right? He's he's no longer protecting them. He's allowing others to to conquer them. So this is the the this is an anthropomorphic way of talking. We do it all the time, even as Christians, right? The Lord will do this. The Lord will do that. He will save his people, and we often are picturing things anthropomorphically. So just let the author be a human being, and this is what he does. Okay, so all right. So he says, but verse nine, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who delivered them. Notice this is the judge, the deliverer, the savior. It's that idea. Many commentators will point this out. The, the word judge here should not be thought in the strict sense of someone in a courtroom, but rather someone who is more like a Moses Joshua character, someone who's a savior of the people. In fact, the root for the word in the different places, different names these characters are given uh, uh, describes that as well. Verse 10. The spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and he judged Israel. So here's our first judge, Othniel. Othniel, he's the first of our major judges. Why is he called a major judge? Well, the, the major or minor judges are simply our categories we give them to keep track of these guys. Major judge is someone who has some narrative associated with them. So it's a very short narrative, like Othniel, the guy only gets a couple lines. But at least it's got some narrative. It gives you some details. So he gets the category major judge. There are other major judges that go on for chapters. Think of Samson or Gideon. So major judge means there's, there's some narrative associated with them. A minor judge is one that means the, judge, the author of the text just simply told you his name. He judged Israel, and then he died. They just give you a couple lines, and they're done. So Othniel are first of the, the, the major judges who I'm throwing in that category. But notice here, verse in the spirit of the Lord is upon him. This will be important at the end of the talk tonight. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. The spirit of Yahweh. This is God's spirit. Okay, we're talking about the Trinity here. So this is this is one of the divine persons. God gives his spirit to this individual to do what? To save his people. 
So God's job, job is who is who is God? We talked about this last week. He is their king. And therefore, when individuals step into God's role, he shares his spirit with them so that they can do God's work. He gives them his breath so they can breathe, right? Have his energy, his strength, speak his words, and do what he what he uh, he wills them to do. Think of just think of that in a very real kind of earthy sense. If you were to stop breathing, could you do what you need to do? No, you'd be dead, right? So when God gives his breath, then the individual is given the power of God to do these things. Very important. We get New Testament, right? A lot of times people think of the spirit. Oh, the spirit was, we talked about this last week. I know in other Bible studies where you got that heresy that people think of it somehow. The Old Testament, that's when God the Father was working. The son was, and the spirit were, you know, on the easy chairs. But then he says, hey, boy, get to work. He sends his son, right? That's the incarnation. That's the gospel period. And then and then the son, he's done. Ascension, boop, back to the easy chair. And then he says, Holy Spirit, time to get to work. And now we're in the age of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's heresy. That's absolute heresy. The three persons of the Trinity are one God, not three gods, and they work as one in unison. Okay, so you'll find all over the Old Testament the Spirit of God, and even allusions to, as the fathers will describe us, the second person, blessed Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ. We'll see it here in a second. Okay, so the Spirit of God was upon him. Now, what is then unique? Some people ask, what is unique about the New Testament, about the giving of the Spirit? What's happening in the Old Testament is God gives the spirit to individuals, the king, the judge, the prophet, to do these things. In the New Testament, all of God's people receive the spirit. All of God's people become the Christ, as, as, uh, as Joel the prophet said. How, all of God's people will somehow have the spirit of God to be, to be prophet, priest, and king somehow. Of course, we can only understand in hindsight when we look at the New Testament, we understand the sacraments and what happens to us in the process of our initiation of the church. More on that in the New Testament study. Okay, uh, it says that, verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave this guy, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and he and his hand prevailed over him. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel died. Want to guess what the next line is? And the people of Israel again did what was evil on the side of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglog, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil on the side of the Lord. So there you hear again, it strengthened the Moabites against his people. Theologically, what's happening here is the people of Israel have moved away from the Lord. And therefore, the enemy is able to overpower them. So the enemy has been strengthened in a certain sense, right? Again, you got to balance the theological understanding of the of the, uh, of the immutability of God with the anthropomorphic language that the author is using in his literary devices. Verse 12, and the people of Israel, there was evil inside the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the cities of Palms, Jericho, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried to Yahweh, right, they're turning back to the Lord. Then the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. I like this guy. Why is he left-handed? What what's significant is we read the story. We can't read all the stories. I'd love to read them. We see how he overcomes his enemy. He kills this king because they didn't expect he would 
draw a sword with his left hand, right? So he's got the sword on the other side. They think, well, that guy, he's, that's a little sword. Can't do it. He's a left-hand swordsman. He pulls the sword out and kills the king, right? We'll hear at the end of the story about the left hand. Any of you have ever involved in fencing? I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I had a friend who was a fencer. And I said, yeah, I'd like to learn a little bit about that. So I said, okay. So I put the sword in my hand. And, oh, you're left-handed. I said, yeah. Is that good? Or bad? He said, well, it's a big advantage. Why is that? He said, because the average guy you're going to go against a right-handed man, and he usually trains against a right-handed man. So he's not going to expect how you're going to move. This is a great advantage. I never really took off in the whole fencing thing. I am busy with other things. But, but that was, a, I remember that. And I remember these stories of judges, how the left-handed guys with the swords often were able to, able to overpower the others. Okay, so you hear that story. It's kind of a gruesome story. There's some comedy there. You can read it on your own. We'd run out of time otherwise. So now we're going to turn to verse 31, the next judge. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anna, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat. He too delivered Israel. There's your minor judge, right? So we get a, a major judge, Othniel, another major judge, number two if you're counting, Aud. And then we get our first minor judge mentioned, Shamgar. He's called a minor judge because, again, this is what you get. you got about six of these guys in the book who we're going to hear just a line or two about them. And then we're going to move to a major judge, Deborah, chapter 4. And the people of Israel, again, it was evil on the side of the Lord. You can see the author keeping track of this cycle. In the sight of the Lord, after Ahab died, and the Lord sold them in the hand of Jobin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar, and the commander of the army of Sisera, who dwelt in that place, then the people of Israel cried to Yahweh for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Chariots of iron. These were, you know, in, the, in that ancient world, if you didn't have a chariot, a guy had a chariot with a horse in front could take out 10, 20 foot soldiers, right? So uh, a chariot was so an iron one, very strong, and a horse from Egypt in front of it. This was the Sherman tank or the F-16 or whatever they're flying today, I don't know, the, uh, of the ancient world. So you'll often hear about these chariots in these places. So you had very strong chariots. 20 years. Verse 4. Now, Deborah, this is our major judge, our third major judge now. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lippodeth, was judging Israel. At that time, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Okay, so Deborah, here's our, our uh, female judge. Deborah is mentioned as one of the judges. She's in our list of judges in most commentaries. And Deborah, Deborah would be then our major judge number three. Uh, verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Benoam, from Kadesh in Nathli, and said to him, Yahweh, the God of Israel, commands you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the tribe of Nathli and, and the tribe of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera. This is all happening up in the north. You know, Zebulun, Nathli, Tabor, this is up in Galilee. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Javan's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Now, Barak should have faith and say, oh, good, thank you for that little tip. I'm going to go get, get to business. But instead, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So he's chicken. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will give Sisera into the hand of the one. Right? If you want a woman to go out with you, oh, man of war, right? then a woman is going to conquer your enemy. And he says, okay, fine. I just would like to have you along. Apparently, he's a little bit 
Right. So he goes out. Then they have a battle. Sisera is routed. And when Sisera flees, the general of the army, if the general of an army is fleeing, then the army is scattered, right? It's over at this point. This is back in the, in the old days, the general was on the front line. He led the battle. But today, of course, we think of generals and, and heads of countries differently in war. But back then, they led the battle. So Cicero's fled. The, the battle's over for, for these people. And, and they're, they're chasing and killing off these soldiers. Cicero's fleeing as a general. He flees to a tent. And Gile, this woman in the tent, she comes and, and hides him. And he, and, he, and he says, can you give me a drink of water? I'm a bit thirsty. So she gives him some milk, right? And this is something to put him to sleep. And then when he falls asleep, she pounds a tent peg through his temple into the ground. All right. Certainly worthy of the title judge in the proper sense of that word in this book. Okay. So now then you get the, the song of Deborah. And we don't have time to look at this. It's a very beautiful song. It's one of those songs or psalms outside of the book of Psalms. A lot of times we think of the book of Psalms as the collection of all the songs of ancient Israel. Well, it collects most of them, but there's a lot of songs that don't appear in the, in the book of Psalms, the hymnal of the temple. Some of them are other places, and here is one of them. So the song of Deborah, you can read that on your own. Chapter 6. Chapter 6. In fact, we'll look at the line just above it. And the land had rest for 40 years after the death of Sisera. Then chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord. Notice the author's keeping with that cycle over and over. As soon as the judge dies, the people go back to evil. And it was evil on the side of the Lord, and the Lord gave them the hand of the Midianites, seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed over Israel because the Midian, the people of the Israel, made for themselves dens. For the, so we hear about the, the, what happens. The Midianites, the Amalekites, the Israelites are raiding the land whenever it's time for planting and harvest. They're taking the food. Okay, so as soon as it's time for harvest, the, the, the raiders come in, take the food, and run off. And then what's left, it's like, you know, after the cockroaches have eaten everything in the kitchen in the morning. So it's all gone. So, so then we hear the story in chapter 6, verse 7. When the people of Israel cried to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and said to them, Thus is the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who pressed you. And I drove out them before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall pay no reverence to the gods of the Amorites in, those, in whose land you dwell. Amorite being used there in the general sense of the people land. But you have not given heed to my voice. Notice the problem is not their, their proclivity towards bacon. Notice that the problem is not their proclivity towards a, 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 a ham or, or not wearing the yarmulke just right or didn't enough gefilte fish. Or the, the, notice this, these aren't the issues. All of the laws, 365 laws of the Torah, are all intended to catechetically direct the Israelite toward the Lord their God, love of him alone, and love of their neighbor. And... Many of those laws are, are, in a certain sense, cultural barriers. If the neighbor Canaanites who worship gods eat bacon for breakfast and you can't eat bacon, that's going to create a cultural barrier for you. You can't hang out with them. You can't have barbecues with them. And their daughters and your kids aren't going to remarry. Your boys not going to have that. So, so those are cultural barriers. That's what's going on. We talked about that before and also in our Old Testament study. Okay, so 
I just wanted to focus in on that for you because this is something that's so often missed. What was the sin of the Israelites in the Old Testament? Why did the people go to Babylon, the Babylon exile? What was it all about? What, what was the sin of Adam in the garden? In the end, most people don't understand across the board, this is idolatry. Idolatry. As St. Paul summarized so well in Romans chapter 1, they worship the creature instead of the creator. Okay, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak of Ophrah, which is beyond, belonged to Joash, uh, the Ebony's right? And his, and his son, Gideon, was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Okay, so he's a chicken. All right, so where's the wine? The wine press is down in the valley. When you, you grow your grapes, the, the valley, you grow your barley and wheat. That's where you've got your high water table. And then when you're all, when you've harvested all your barley or wheat, in bundles, you bring it up to the top of a, the nearest hill where there's wind and a threshing floor, exposed bedrock. And then you beat out that stuff up on the rock, up on the hilltop. But the Midianites would see you doing it and would come and steal it. So what Gideon's done is instead he's done the opposite. The grapevines grow on the hillsides, on the hills. And the grapes are heavy when you harvest them. So the harvesters carry the grapes downhill to the bottom of the hill, to the valley where the wine press is, and you beat out, smash the grapes down there, you know, eight pounds per gallon for them. So this is heavy stuff. So what Gideon's done is instead of taking the wheat up to the top of Thresh because he's afraid of the Midianites, they're gonna come, they're gonna see him up there with the wind blowing, threshing his grain. He says, no, 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 I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna stay down here in the valley and I'm gonna, I'm gonna thresh it out here in the wine press, okay? So, He's beating out the wine press and the, uh, to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Yahweh is with you, you mighty man of valor. Excuse me? I think you got the wrong guy. And Gideon said to him, Pray, sir, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this befallen us? And where are all these wonderful deeds, which our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from out of Egypt? But now Yahweh has cast us off and given us in the hand of Midianites. There was that reference to what has the Lord done, the works of the Lord, right? Very important there. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said, Pray, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Behold, my clan is weak as in Manasseh, and I'm the weakest in my family, and I'm a chicken. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall smite the Midianites as one man. Right? As if you're going to attack one man, you're going to knock him down. Okay, so there's some humor in the book of Judges. It's all over the Bible like that. So here's this guy who is absolutely worthless, and the Lord's going to take him and use him as a savior for the people of Israel. Remember Moses? I can't even talk well. I mean, Lord, you got the wrong guy. Yeah, I know. I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. Remember Paul, what he says? I, I got a thorn in my side, this messenger of Satan. I said, I prayed for me, taken away. The Lord said, no, no, I got the right guy. This is just right. Right? So, so this is a great encouragement for all of us. When we look at the ones that God calls, he calls them with their weaknesses. And with and the ones who know of their weaknesses, he calls those, those, those individuals so that they know and all around them know it is not by their hand, but by the hand of the Lord that these things took place. Okay, so here's Gideon now. So what happens? Verse 25. Then, uh, so there's a story about the sacrificial thing here. This is one of those places that angel of the Lord. Is it the Lord? Angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord? Lord. 
We talked about this in the Old Testament study, the book of Exodus, the angel of the Lord, and the Lord. Many of the fathers saw this as examples of the pre-incarnate Christ, or that is the second person, blessed Trinity, at work in salvation history. Well, I thought he was on the easy chair. Take a look at Genesis 1. And he spoke, and it came to be. Right, The word of the Lord is there from the beginning. From the beginning. More on that in a theology course. Okay, so verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull. This is verse 25. The second bull, uh, the second bull, seven years old, and pulled down the altar of Baal, which your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. The Asherah was a, a sacred pillar, like a tree type of thing. Think of like a pillar and bullpen. And he built an altar to the Lord, Yahweh. And build an altar to Yahweh, your God, on top of the stronghold there, here, and with stones laid in due order. And take the bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of Asherah. <laughs> this is really going to upset the pagans. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was chicken, because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So he, he does what he's told him to do. But again, all throughout the story, you see Gideon, the, he's, he's a little shy, a little uh, just, just short of courage there. Verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered upon the altar and had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had made a search and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Josh, bring out your son that he may die. For he has pulled down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Joash said to all who were arrayed against him, will you contend for Baal? Or will you defend his cause? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been pulled down. Therefore, on that day, he was called Zerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he pulled down the altar. So, he's, so from then on, Gideon is known as a guy who's a real opposer of Baal worship. Okay, so he has two names, Jerubabel or, or um, uh, Gideon as you read through the rest of the story. Verse 33, and all the Amalekites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together crossing the Jordan and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So there's going to be a battle here. Verse 36, Gideon, uh, so the Lord says, go out and fight against them. Verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if thou wilt deliver Israel by my hand, as thou hast said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and is dry on the ground, then I shall know that thou wilt deliver me. So, of course, the next morning it happens. He says, all right, well, maybe, okay, just, I'm still not really sure, Lord. Can we try and switch it around a bit and see what happens again? And, of course, it happens again. Throughout the whole story, you get this Gideon, the chicken, right? But the Lord keeps using him, even in his, in, his, uh, in his fear. The Lord uses him as an incredible instrument for the salvation of his people. Okay, now, chapter 7, we hear about Zerubbabel, again, that is Gideon. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morath in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites in your hand. Thus Israel bought themselves against me, saying, my, my own hand has delivered me. Now, therefore, 
Proclaim the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. And Gideon tested them. 22,000 returned. 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the river. So we get the rest of the story. He says, Take them down the river and tell them to drink out of the river. So they do. And he says, Whoever drinks like a dog that is taking the water and licking it with their, their tongue out of their hands, put it on one side. But the ones that put their face down to the water and suck up the water really fast, like a camel, put them on the other side. So Gideon does it. And then the Lord says, the ones that sucked up water like a camel, send them home. With the 300 guys that lapped up water like a dog, I'm going to conquer the enemy. Right, so you can see how what the Lord has done is reduced it down, reduced it down, and then reduced it down to 300 that would be among the people considered not all that bright. So he's going to use those now to conquer the enemy. And of course, you know the rest of the story. All right, now in chapter 7, as the, 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 the description of the conquering is the story that gives Gideon the, the image that everyone knows about him, right, from the Gideon Bible. Right, the, the Gideon Bible with the torch and the little and the little jar. So Gideon is told to go down, and he has certain instruments with him. He has a torch. Each guy has a torch. All his, uh, his army men have a torch. But the torch is inside, underneath through a hole in the bottom of a vase, so that you can't see the light directly on. But it's got open air, so it can breathe. And and, and then they go out with trumpets and bats. And they surround the Midianite camp at night. There's not enough guys here. There's only 300 guys. And the Midianites are in camp. There's very, very difficult odds for the Israelites. So what do they do? Well, they, they surround the camp at night while the guys are sleeping. And as you read the rest of the story, there's a dream here that tells what's going to happen. But as you read the rest of the story, it tells in verse 15. Then Gideon at the, tells them, sound the trumpets. They blow the trumpets. They break the vessels. All this noise of the trumpet blast and the cracking of these vessels and then the sudden torches of light, the Midianites jump out of their tents and think there's a, they're, they're going to die. So the Midianites pull their swords out and start fighting against each other, thinking that the battles among them kill half of their own men and flee. And there's the rest of the story. You can read that on your own. Again, we can't read all the stories, but this is one of those more memorable stories for the book of Judges because most people know about those those Gideon Bibles that are passed out in the image there. Okay, chapter 8, verse 22. Chapter 8, verse 22. We hear about a little story here that I just want to look at quickly with you, and then we're going to jump uh, on again. Verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian. And Gideon said, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. What does he mean by that? Right? They're asking Gideon to become their king. And Gideon said, I'm not going to become your king. You already have a king. Yahweh is your king. But you don't submit to him. He can't rule over you because you won't submit to him. He, can't, he won't save you because you will not submit to him. So there's a, that theme there. We're going to pick up that at the end of the book in a second. So, so just hold on to that. Highlight that in chapter 8. Verse 23, Yahweh will rule over you. Okay, now, then we have the rest of the story about a, a, an ephod and all that kind of stuff. If we have time, we can come back to those things at the end, but I think we'll run out of time to otherwise. Chapter 9 is taken up with a, a story about Abimelech, the son of Gideon, who is judged for a while, 
Not such a great character, but you can read that on your own. You do have the theme in chapter 9 about who is going to be the anointed king. You get it in chapter 9, verse 8. The, uh, and then you also get it again in verse 15. So you can see all the way from here in the beginning, there's this theme, this question, who's the king of Israel? Who is their king? Okay, then chapter 10, verse 1. After Abimelech, son of Gideon, after he died, there arose to deliver Israel Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. So this is your, your second of your minor judges, if you're counting there. And verse 2, he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. Okay, verse 3. Now we come to our third of our minor judges. After him was Jair, the Gideonite. And again, you just get a line or two about these minor judges, and then they die, and it goes on. Verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 10 to the end of the chapter is very helpful for us because although it's related to some quick little minor judges, here's where the, the author jumps in, as he does in a number of places, and gives his explanation, his theology to understand what's going on here. Verse 6. And the people of the show did again was evil on the side of the Lord. And serve the Baalim, the Ashtaroth, the sun, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. And the anger of Yahweh's kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the, the children of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel and they were beyond the Jordan, the land of the, the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Verse Nine. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So Israel was sorely distressed. Verse 10. And the people of Israel cried to Yahweh, saying, We have sinned against thee because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baalim. Now, Baalim there, the Baals is being used to refer to the male and female gods. You see how that's used there? So when you get the, the Baalim and the Astro, there's the male and female gods, a little more specific. But then when you get the, in general, the Baalim, they're talking about all the pagan gods. And we have spoken of in our Old Testament course, which uh, many of you probably attended. There's where we talked about the use of Baal in a specific sense as the rain god of the Canaanites. There is that title was also used. That name was used as a proper title or name for a particular god of the Canaanites. That story we know about in Elijah with his ecumenical dialogue with the prophets of that god on Mount Carmel. Okay, chapter 10. Verse 11, and the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians and the, and the Amorites and the Ammonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Notice no problem. You didn't bring up bacon there. I'm not telling you to go out and eat a lot of bacon, okay? What I'm trying to do is make sure you grasp this. People often think that God, uh, God in the Old Testament was this legalistic God. He gave them all these microscenes, this minutia of laws. They had to do every little thing. Otherwise, he'd get mad at them. All of those laws are summarized, as Jesus says in the New Testament, as one of the lawyers says when Jesus asked in the New Testament, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and your neighbors yourself. And then that's all the law that prophets fulfilled. Every one of those laws, if you look at them, was a law that, directed the Israelite toward Yahweh or prevented them from slipping into polytheism. Every one of them. 
If we had time, we could go through Leviticus like that. And we could, I could show you a number of those examples. All right. We talked about this in the Old Testament class as well. Verse, uh, let's see, verse 14. Go and cry to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to Yahweh, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to thee. Only deliver us, we pray thee, this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them. Right? They were crying out while they got pagan idols. So they put away the foreign gods that were among them and served Yahweh. And he became indignant over the misery of Israel. So there's this like really frustration of the Lord, right? Because these people are impossible. Chapter 11, we have the story of Jephthah. Jephthah the Gileadite, one of the more miserable creatures in the book here. But also a judge. So he's one of our major judges, the, the fifth of the major judges. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. Gilead was the father, uh, Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they thrust Jephthah out, and they said to him, You shall not inherit in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected round Jephthah and went raiding with them. So this guy's a he's a pretty miserable individual. He's he's tossed out of the house because he's the mother or the son of a harlot. And then he goes and wanders around, becomes a criminal, and other criminals gather around him, and he lives a life of criminal behavior, raiding, rioting, things like that, which we're familiar with now in most of our major cities. Okay, verse 4, and after a time, the Ammonites made war against the Israelites. And then, of course, the Israelites come to Jephthah and say, hey, please help us. He said, hey, remember you didn't like me? And then they said, no, no, please, you can be our king. We'll do whatever you want. He said, okay, thank you very much. So notice he uses his power over them. Very different from Gideon there, right? So, so he said, okay, I'll, I'll, um, if, you, if you serve me as king, then I'll save you. And so they say, yeah, yeah, we'll do whatever you want. Okay, that's in, that contract they make is in verse 10. So then flip down to verse 29 to speed it up here. Verse 29, then the spirit of Yahweh came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on from, to Mitzvah of Gilead. And from Mitzvah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And then here we come to one of the more problem verses here, verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If thou wilt give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes forth from the doors of my house to meet me, obviously this is would have to be a human being, when I return victorious from the Ammonites, I shall uh, shall be is it, from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer him up for a burnt offering. Okay, now, before you get any further, you read this very carefully. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him to go out and conquer the enemy of Israel. But in the, before he actually goes out to conquer, he now makes a vow that he will offer the first human being that comes out of his house a sacrifice. So was this of the Spirit of the Lord? No way. No way. And if you want any example of this kind of of a problem, look at the story of Saul, where God puts the spirit upon Saul to go out and accomplish things. But as he's doing it, before the battle, after the battle, Saul's doing all sorts of other things he shouldn't be doing. And eventually, Saul gets in trouble for it, right? So the same thing here, Jephthah. Jephthah, a worthless guy, 
bad character, but he decides to conquer the enemies of Israel, says to take that on. God sends his spirit upon Jephthah to give him the power to conquer the enemy of Israel. But in the midst of this process, before he goes into battle, he takes a sinful vow. He, he promises to offer someone of his own household, one of his children, a servant, whatever, to the God of Israel who has forbidden such types of things. I could give you a long list, but you can write down for it just for your notes there. You can write down Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, where God tells the Israelites clearly, you shall not offer child sacrifice. You shall not offer human sacrifice to me as the people of the land do when you go in there. Okay, so that's Deuteronomy 12, uh, 31. Now, someone might bring up, there are a number of places in the Psalms of Proverbs, pay your vows to the Lord. Psalm 116, verse 14, etc. But this would not be a proper vow to the Lord. This would, think of, for example, making a vow to the Lord. Lord, I promise for all my life I will lie to my neighbor. No, well, you better keep that up, boy, because you made a vow to the Lord. Or I, I, I vow to the Lord that I will murder every man I see until the day I die. Right? You're, these are not vows to keep, right? These are, these are vows made uh, in ignorance or in uh, ignorance of the law or vows made in, uh, in, in opposition to the law. Who knows what? Or vows made by a crazy man. But these are, these are not, you're not obligated to do these things. People do these uh, tragically. As a priest, I have some. Sometimes people come to me and they they've made some sort of a vow. Father, what do I do? I mean, I I promised to to the Lord that I would always do this, this, and this, and, and but I I I think I can do that because of this. Okay, why did you promise in the first place? What do you what do you 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 promise something? That there's no way you can do. Why would you do that? You're not obligated to keep a vow you cannot do or keep a vow that is contrary to the will of the Lord. This is craziness. Okay, so, so that's what happens here. Jephthah, though, gets the spirit of the Lord put upon him to conquer the enemy. Before he actually conquers the enemy, makes a foolish, foolish vow. And, we're, and the author of the text has prepared us for that by telling us about his background. Okay, so then what happens? He's victorious over his enemies. And then verse 34, he comes back home and his own daughter comes out to meet him and say, hey, dad, nice to see you. Okay, so so now he says, what am I going to do? So the rest of the story here is hard to discern clearly, but commentators are divided on how to read it. There are a minority of commentators even some Jewish rabbis, Middle Ages men, uh, who, who suggest that he did not actually kill his daughter as a whole burnt offering. And the reason is because other than this, Jephthah is remembered as one of the judges. So you think, well, could he really have done something so stupid? So, uh, and the idea was, well, what did he do with his daughter then? Well, you remember Exodus 38, verse 8. You remember the sons of Eli laying with the daughters at the door of the tent of meeting, the, the women who, who ministered to the door of the tent of meeting. So there were, we know from Exodus 38, verse 8, we know from 1 Samuel, we know that there were virgin young women who ministered in some way at the door of the tent of meeting. We've talked about this in our, when I've talked to you about Mary and the early church's understanding of her dedication to the temple. More on that in other talks. But one suggestion among the Jewish commentators even is that maybe that's what happened to her. 
that she was dedicated as a virgin and offered to the Lord for the rest of her life. The majority of commentators, and, and that's very possible, by the way, the majority of the commentators, however, say, no, 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 come on, you got to read the story as it says it. The guy's a fool. He made a stupid vow, and he did something even more foolish, which in that story, then, is some catechesis, right? Don't make stupid vows, come to the Lord, and you better not, even more foolishly, try to fulfill them if they are foolish vows right? and they are contrary to law. So hard to know exactly uh, which way to read that commentators are divided. Okay, now chapter 12, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years, and then he died and was buried. Verse 8, after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. That's our minor judge number four. Verse 11, and then Elon, the Gemini judge Israel. That's our minor judge five. And then number 13, verse 13, after Abdon judge. That's our minor judge number six. So we're done with our minor judges now. Almost finished here. We, we just still have one last judge to deal with, and that's our last major judge, and that is Samson. Okay, and that's Samson's stories in chapter 13. The people of Israel again did what was evil on the side of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Barrenness in salvation history is often the precursor to the birth of a very important individual. Think of all the examples. We don't have time to list them all right now. Okay, so, so now we hear about this, this boy, Samson, who's going to be a Nazarite from birth. No razor shall touch his head. He will never have his head uh, shaved, and he will never consume wine, grape juice, or even a raisin. And to make sure of that, his mother does not drink while she's pregnant wine, strong drink, or eat a raisin. Uh, you can see in the Old Testament, they certainly understood that that child was alive and a human being in the, in the womb of his mother because even she was forbidden from eating these things or any things while she had him in the womb. Incredible pro-life uh, teaching there uh, for any Christians who are willing to contemplate the Bible on the issue. Okay, so we have the rest of the story, the birth of Samson. We can't read all this together. Samson is a bit of a wild character, okay? He's very different. If you want to put two stark contrasts, you've got Deborah and Samson. As far as polar opposites in the book of Judges, we have many different characters. We have individuals that are primarily religious, Deborah. We have individuals who are primarily just military might, like Samson or Jephthah. Some characters like Gideon are pretty pious, good guys, but they don't have a perfect story. They're kind of chicken and other things. But then you have, you know, someone like Jephthah, who's a criminal, but the Lord uses him to do, do what he wills. And then we have Samson, who's a really an interesting character in many ways. He's the Nazarite. Okay, so Samson, chapter, uh, chapter 14, we hear about Samson's first love, a Philistine girl. He likes those Philistine girls. And his parents say, hey, son, you know, what's wrong with the girls of our own clan? And he said, I like that Philistine girl. I want her as a wife. 
Well, you can read the rest of the story on your own. It doesn't work out well for Samson. This makes Samson angry, and he decides to kill a bunch of Philistines as a result. In chapter 16, Samson then went to Gaza. He goes to the Philistines. And there he saw a harlot, and he went into her. And the, Ga and the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, but he pulls out the gate of the city and flees. They had it closed, obviously, so he couldn't get out, so he just pulls the gate out and runs away. Very strong man. Chapter 16, verse 4, Delilah. So there's three. Samson's weakness is Philistine ladies, obviously. And the third one is going to be his downfall. So this is the third Philistine lady, Delilah. There may be some comments suggest a, a, a subtle play here. The name is Samson, Shemesh's son. Shemshon is the name in Hebrew. It, it's, it sounds like a play off the root for son, the son, the, the bright son. Delilah, Lila, Lila is the word for night in Hebrew. So someone suggests there may be kind of a hint for the author here telling us, you know, that Samson's end is coming. The night is going to overtake Samson here. The night is going to overtake the sun. But who knows? There's again, there's some debates about the roots there. Chapter 16. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the Philistines came and said to her, hey, you know, we know Samson's kind of got a liking for you. Why don't you ask him what it is that gives him his great strength? So she asked him and Samson tells her a fib. Of course, that's in verse seven. And then, then the Philistines try to attack and he breaks loose, of course. And then in chapters 10 through uh, 12, we hear again, she said, comes to him and says, hey, come on, Samson, what is it? The Philistines, or she didn't tell him, the Philistines are asking. So she asks again and he tells her again something not true. And so then she, uh, uh, she does what he says to do. And then the Philistines attack and Samson is overpowers him. Verse 13 Again, she asked a third time, Samson, please tell me if you really love me. So again, he plays around, tells her something else, and he overcomes the Philistines. Again, I'd like to read this all together, but we don't have time. Verse 15, and she said to him, how can you say you love me? <laughs> You've lied to me these three times. Three is complete, right in the Bible, three complete. And he said, all right, fine. I'm going to ask right from birth. If someone cuts my hair, I'll lose all my strength. Oh, so she tells the Philistines, the Philistines find out, the Philistines come, she cuts the hair, the Philistines attack, and of course they put him in fetters and throw him in the prison. Then we hear about the end of Samson's life, his final judgment of the Philistines. They bring him out into the circus, right, to, to poke fun at him at, the, at a gathering of Philistines, and he makes this, he prays that the Lord would again give him strength. What's happened, as the author tells us, his hair has begun to grow again in prison. So he's getting his strength back. So they bring him out there. Of course, you know the story. He pushes the pillars apart. The stadium falls down and he has victory over the Philistines at the end of his life. Okay. Now we come to the prologue of the book. We don't have time to read the whole thing. I began last week by highlighting this for you, this epilogue. The epilogue of the book is chapter 17 through 21. It's a big, long conclusion of the book. But it's very important because it shows you the chaos that's going on. In chapter 17, we hear about, in fact, chapter 17 and 18, we hear about this Micah character. We hear about idolatry. We hear about a Levite selling himself as a pagan priest. Sounds like our modern era. Chapter 17, verse 6, what's the point of the story? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Highlight that. 
What's the point of the story about the, the paganism and the pagan and the Levite turning pagan priest? Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel over and over and over again. In chapter 19, we hear, in those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country. And we hear the rest of the story. What happens? This guy is staying at a, at a, at a, at a, in, a, uh, in a house in the land of Benjamin. A bunch of Benjamite men gather around the house. They want to sodomize him. And sounds like the story of Solomon Gomorrah. And he sends his wife or his concubine out the door to them. They take advantage of her. They rape her until she's dead. The next morning he comes out. He sees her dead, throws her on his, on his, on his horse or his donkey or camel. And he goes back home, cuts her into pieces, and sends the chunks of flesh to all the tribes of Israel saying, this is what the Benjamites have done. All of Israel gather together against the Benjamites, and there's a civil war. Benjamites against the other tribes. The other tribes conquer the Benjamites, and they're almost completely wiped out. That's how the book ends. And look at this ending of the book here. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So the book prepares us, certainly, as many commentators have noted, for the coming of the monarchy of Israel. Right? What's the next book? You got the little story of Ruth. That little story of Ruth gives you the genealogy of the coming David, right? And the next book is 1 Samuel, the first of the books of the kings. We dealt all of this in the Old Testament class. So the book of Judges is clearly a hinge between the era of Moses and Joshua and Caleb and the Exodus story and the coming of the monarchy. But the book certainly shows us that which connects the two stories. Who is the king of Israel? To whom will the Israelites submit? To a king like the nations or to the king of the universe? And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves today. Are we, as members of the kingdom of God, are we going after other gods sometimes here and there? No, no, Father Sebastian, I don't worship God. I don't know the Astra. Oh, yeah? Do we sometimes worship the creature instead of the creator? How different are we from Adam, as St. Paul said in Romans 5? Right? How different are we? And so we find in our lives constantly the temptation to go after the gods of this world whether it be power, pleasure, a car, uh, a job promotion, popularity, whatever it might be. All of these things are gods for us that we often put ourselves under as opposed to the God, the King, who is also our Father and Creator. And so the book ends, yes, preparing us for the coming of the monarchy, but it also prepares us to properly understand that monarchy, that the kings that will be drawn from the tribes, from the men, Saul, then David, Solomon, Rehoboam, et cetera, et cetera. These kings are to be a reflection of the divine kingship. And we are to see them as the instruments through whom God rules over us. But the only way we could ever understand or discern who is 
the rightful king to the throne is to know first and foremost the king that has put him there. And that is the great challenge I think we have today. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and to age of ages. Amen. Okay, uh, Ray Adder. Uh, Father Sebastian, uh, so back in Genesis, Joseph blesses all his sons. Judah, you're going to be in charge. But then up until 1 Samuel, God plays round robin with the tribes, uh, you know, just kind of picking out of the tribes. What's going on? What, what, what do I take, make of that? Um, okay, so, so yeah, okay, so you go back to Jacob. So let's go back for everybody who's to make sure that everybody's on the same page as Ray, literally here. Uh, so if you go back to the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 49, you can see there that Jacob gives his prophecy. Reuben gets passed over because of the incident with the, his father's concubine, right? Levi and Sinai get passed over because they uh, got mad over the, the incident with Dinah. And then ver, verse 8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp for my prey, the son you have gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, as a lioness who shall rouse him up. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So, so that's what Ray's referring to there is that, well, look, I mean, Jacob prophesied or, or gave authority or special blessing to Judah, and therefore that tribe in some way, to be a leader uh, or the one from whom the leader would come, maybe? It's, a, it's certainly there. Uh, now, then races what, what, but I mean, if you look at the rest of what's going on after that, it's just total chaos until we finally come to David, right? Ray, that's your point. We come to David, who's of the tribe of Judah. So I would guess, Ray, first, I mean, first, you have a lot of, the, the prophecy is, is that this is something that's going to happen. When it will happen is maybe not so clear in the prophecy, one. And then two, we have a lot going on between here and the story of David. But we definitely do have some hints at Judah. If you look at Judah in the book of Joshua and in the book of Judges, Judah seems to have some authority and some power. Look how the book of Judges begins. If you flip over to the beginning of the book of Judges, there's maybe a hint, Ray, that this is kind of at least understood by them. And that's Judges chapter 1. It says, here we go here. Uh, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. So you have, and then Judah goes up, right? So you, you definitely do have some hints at that. But you're right. It's not... It's not like suddenly you get a David right off the bat. And uh, it might be that we're kind of maybe reading back into the Jacob blessing a little more than is there. It might be a little bit kind of a package to be unwrapped. Judah, the tribe, certainly has some maybe some leadership role. Uh, and then um, there's other examples of this too, Ray. If, uh, if you look at Numbers chapter 2, you flip over Numbers chapter 2. Uh, with the uh, uh, the encampment of the Israelites when they're out in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 2, verse 3, Judah gets the prime seat in the encampment. They're right next to the gate. 
The only thing between the, the Judaites and the gate, the Eastern gate, is Moses and Aaron and their families. So, uh, and then, and then another example, as long as we're on this, we're, we're, uh, if you go over to Numbers chapter 10, uh, Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, this is when they just start getting the U-Haul moving, right? This is the first time they start traveling from the mountain off to the promised land. We read this together. Numbers chapter 10, verse 14, the standard of the camp of the men of Judah set out first. You see that? And if we had more time, I could probably come up with a couple more off the top of my head. But but those are some examples where we definitely do see Judah having some sort of a leadership role as a tribe from the time of the prophecy until the time of David. But it's not until we get David, certainly, that we get the image of a, of a scepter, you know, the king and all that. Good we point. have a good question coming in, um, uh, written in from one of the attendees that I think might allow you to, to uh, make sure we have a good, clear understanding of this for Old Testament, Old Testament imagery based here in the book of Judges, but playing out throughout all of salvation history, even today in the church. And that is, what do you mean by the title, playing the harlot? What is it supposed to mean, playing the harlot? Well, my brother came up for, with that title. <laughs> so he likes jazzy titles, as most of the ICC members know. So, uh, but the title comes from the beginning of the book of Judges. We looked at that together last week. Let's go back to Judges here. This is uh, chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. Judges chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand and the power of those who plundered them. Verse 17. And yet they did not listen to their judges for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed down to them, and they soon turn aside. I don't want to get too graphic there, but basically, in general, to keep things clean, uh, the, the image here is the people of Israel have committed to worship the one God. And, and so the commitment that they make, the promise that they make, and that's, that's recorded in Exodus 19 through 24, all the Lord said we will do. I am the Lord the God who brought you out of Israel. You have no other gods before me. Sign us up, right? That's, that's Exodus 19 through 24. That decision, that covenant, that agreement they make, that God promises to protect them and be his, their God, and they promise to be his people, is often described not only in king and kingdom language or God and nation language, but often husband and bride language. This is an intimate covenant to be a one-on-one -on -one relationship. God is going to have a special concern and care for them because he has a special role for them, right? That they're going to give birth in a certain sense to the stars, the heavens, the sands, here, all these nations that will be blessed, right? But they are then to likewise be solely committed to him and not to these foreign gods, to worship him alone. And so that relationship we find in the prophets often, we get it in other places, but the prophets really develop this. You can read Isaiah chapter 1, Jeremiah chapters 1 and 2, uh, Ezekiel really gets in Ezekiel 16 and things like that, where the prophets really hammer on Israel and describe them as a, as a bride that has gone off and become like a prostitute in the street. She's not just gone off and committed adultery that has gone and worshiped another god. They've gone off, she's gone off to worship so many other gods, it's like she's gone off and become an adulterous wife who has become a prostitute in the street. 
And so, and that is a common image we get in the prophets to describe Israel's worship of the other gods because they've, they've chosen to break that, that one-on-one covenant of, that is described. God's caring for them like a husband. They should be directed to him and serving him like a bride, like a wife. And so, so that's what we get in the book of Judges right there. We get it all over the Bible. Like I said, the, the prophets, they really do a lot with this image. The whole book of Hosea. Hosea is, is all about this, right? Here you get the prophet Hosea. God says to him, uh, Hosea, come here. I got something for you, something to do. What's that, Lord? Uh, I want you to go down the street, find a harlot. You're going to marry her. Oh, no, 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 no. Do it. So he goes and marries a prostitute. And, of course, what happens, we read the book. She eventually starts sneaking out at night. And she's going in the street again to make some extra money. And she starts having children. But they're not Hosea's children. And so then he says, I want you to name these kids, not my son, not my people, right? Just laying them out. And so that's the story of this. So you get, you get throughout the prophets, you get throughout the Bible of when we turn ourselves away from the Lord to worship someone, something else in creation, it's almost as if we are committing covenantal, not just idolatry, but what really is in the end, covenantal adultery. We have another question in here coming from Luann, who says, if the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old, how are we to understand the church's prayer for unity when one of the lessons of the judges is keeping cultural barriers, such as marriage within tribes? So, yeah, I mean, obviously there's an application here. Uh, there's a, there, is a, there is a false gospel being preached from the mouth of the devil in the garden all the way until today. We will always, as God's people, hear, even in the midst of the garden, we will hear false teachers. Paul warned us of this, right? Turn with me for a second to 2 Timothy. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. This is Timothy's exhortation from his master, Paul. Now, this is, you remember from our study of the point epistles, this is probably Paul's last will and testament in the church. This is probably the last letter he wrote or something very close to that. It's certainly the last letter he writes to Timothy. And you can hear in chapter four, as you get into verse nine and follow, no, verse six and following, he, he, he realizes he's about to die. So there's an urgency here in this letter that's incredible energy and urgency as we read it. And again, we read it together in our point epistle study. Chapter four, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, yeah, there's our word, who is the judge, the judge, the living of the living and the dead. And by his appearing, his incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, his appearing, and his kingdom, that is the church. So I charge you by some heavy stuff here. Preach the word. Preach the word. What is the word here? The word, there's no, none of the four gospels exist yet. They're not written down. Preach the word that is the good news of Jesus Christ. That he has come, he has died, he has risen from the dead. And through his death and resurrection, we, if we may die, will also rise with him. We've talked about it in our Pauline study. Preach the word. Be urgent in season. That is, be ready and do what you're supposed to do at the right time. Be urgent in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Be unfailing in patience and teaching. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Okay, Timothy's a pretty good guy, right? Paul says this to him. Timothy, take your job seriously. 
rebuke, convince, exhort, be unfailing in patience and in teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. As for you, always be steady, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul had to warn his communities from the beginning about the problem of heresy infecting the people of God. Think of Galatians chapter 1 that we studied together. I tell you that if someone ever comes to you preaching a gospel contrary to that which we preached past tense to you, that which you received initially, whether it be an angel from heaven, I don't care who it is, let him be anathema, that is utterly destroyed by God under the curse of Almighty God. Now, I think when you hear that, and we talked about that in the Pauline study, I think people read that, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable here. Paul's not sounding like a nice guy. I mean, he's not sounding like, you know what he's not sounding like? He's not sounding like our modern clergy. I think what our modern clergy need to do, our deacons, our priests, our bishops, especially the ones that are in the highest authority, all need to read what is said right here. Preach the word. This is your job. Your job is not food kitchen, people's kitchens, food kitchens, soup kitchens. Your job is not social work. Your job, Jesus gave us a very important, clear description of our job. Go out, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I have taught you. And that is why we're all here gathered tonight. And that is the importance of the Institute of Catholic Culture. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.